0: Last time we left God giving an ultimatum to the point man, Joshua, right? You remember chapter 7, verse 2? Destroy the things that represent evil in your midst. Um, let me set my watch so I don't overburden you guys. Or I will not be with you anymore. And like we said, God has called to us in the same manner throughout the New Testament to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Colossians chapter 3, Romans eight thirteen. Jesus is not, I want to say this, guys. And we need to understand this. Jesus is not going to sit with you through movies with pornographic vile talk. He's not going to sit with you at the bar getting your buzz on, though that's become quite popular in our movement with pastors. He is not going fishing with you and hunting with you and you know to your, you kids of sporting events or surfing with you when you have replaced those activities for being in his house at a time when you should be in fellowship and in a relationship with him. Instead, you traded off for an idolatrous relationship with any of those issues. He's not going to hang out where immorality is taking place, adultery, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, or pornography. Guys, he is king, a holy, righteous king, and we are called to walk as Jesus walked, not in intentional premeditated sin. And this is what he told Joshua. I'm not going to be with you anymore until you deal with this. And he calls you and I as men on point to remove the evil with extreme prejudice in the camp of our personal lives as well as our ministries. And so chapter 7, verse 13 through 15, God gives Joshua, the point man, the orders of how God will point out the evil and how that evil is to be dealt with. So let's look at that. Chapter 7, verse 13 through 15. We read it, it says, rise up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by household, and the household by which the Lord takes shall come near by man. By man. And it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with the fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Wow. So God says, you know, consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart beyond where they were at at the moment. Set yourselves apart a time of holiness because the event that was about to happen was going to be a holy event. And if they were unwilling to consecrate themselves, then God would not have come to help them remove this defilement. He's not going to point it out. He's like, you want to live in this? You're not willing to set yourself apart? Then, then live with it. And guys, we must consecrate our lives If we want to see God work in our lives, I've got a long way to go this morning, so I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but even recently, I was sharing with Tim, and he kind of looked at me this morning, kind of warped, you know, with that kind of beard thing he's got going. He didn't have that at my place. I I think he came back and drank some testosterone or something. He kind of looks like that guy in Frosty the Snowman guy with the little thing, you know, cute little beard thing. I'm like, and he's looking at me this morning like, really? Really? Because I told him, I said, you know, even on my iPod Touch, man, I had to have my wife take off uh, the internet capability because I have such an addiction to pornography. I mean, dude, I, I grew up warped, messed up. And, and, and I tell my guys, I was telling them this morning, those guys cannot come to my house for counseling, leave their pornography on my desk and walk out the door. I can't handle it. We destroy it together or don't bring it to me. How many of you guys have issues with that, maybe? Don't raise your hand. You know you do. You just don't want to raise your hand. I'm not the only, this isn't like therapy for me. We deal with it. We war with it. It's all over the place. It's in our face. Like my wife says, we don't have to go looking for it. It's hunting us. And I, you know, it, it was just a few weeks ago I had to go to my wife. Can you take the internet off my iPod? Dude, I'm 52 years old. You have to consecrate yourself, guys. You have to do things to change before you want god to, you want God to come in and clean up your life and move on you well, then you may have to change some stuff. I think God tells Joshua the plan. He tells him first on how he will point out the one guilty for bringing evil into the camp and suffering upon god's people and look at Joshua's assignment once those guilty are pointed out. once God says Joshua, here's what must be eliminated to keep. Those in your care safe who are following your lead as point man. You must burn this person and all that belongs to him, his family. Guys, can you imagine what was going through Joshua's mind as he lay in bed that night pondering his duty for the next morning? We spoke of it last night. Will it be a friend? Can you imagine? Will it be my friend? Will it be children that I've held in my arm? Will it be my wife's friends? Could it be a relative? Think, guys, one person's sin, and yet so many are going to suffer for it in the congregation of God. Joshua has to lie in bed all night committed to doing God's will, though it is a horrendous act of obedience that so many will see as brutal. You see what I'm talking about? Because when you preach truth in the church, number one, you are labeled as brutal. (laughs) And then the God that you speak of is labeled as brutal. Can you imagine if you had to carry out this act as an act of obedience? How can God be so cruel? How can you, Joshua, be so cruel? Listen, there's nothing easy about being the point man when there's danger to be pointed out and eliminated, such as church discipline issues to be carried out or wolves among the sheep to be dealt with. In our first session, I mentioned the fact that my special forces source said, the point man is one who points out dangers, one who watches for signs of those he is tracking to eliminate, clearly warning those who are following his lead. And like we said, when he is on point, he is the eyes and the ears of those who are moving with him, and he dictates the speed and the flow of the movement. And like we said in our last session, when the point man fails to do his job, the results are disastrous. And what does that look like in the New Testament, guys? Is, is there a, a, a man on point example for us to follow in pointing out dangerous men and dealing with them? Well, there's going to be several scriptures. Write them down. Go back and read them. But Matthew 7 15, we find Jesus warning us beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So I say to you, here's the deal. If you're going to identify wolves the way Jesus said they would look, guess where they're going to be? At the zoo? No, they're going to be in the church. Try identifying wolves within the church, though, these days. Listen, Jesus, the voice of the point man, says, they, Hey, there will be those around you who to your eyes will appear to be brothers. They will look and sound like sheep. But inwardly, where you can't see, like a hidden tripwire, they are vicious wolves longing to destroy God's sheep for their own appetites. Jesus says, you will know them by what? You can't see what's inside, but you will know them by their fruits, their lives. That you can see. That will be the difference. That will be the tangible evidence of who and what they are. And does their life look like Jesus? Does the fruit of who they are look like Jesus or a New Testament apostle? Or are they caught up in power and status and titles and luxurious living and greed? Are they a lover of self, immoral, or a promoter of immorality in any way, drunkenness, or things that lead to any of these? Jesus gives instruction again in Luke chapter 6, verse 22 to 23. Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. He states in verse 23, this is how false people treat a true spokesman for God. This is how they treat it. He says it. He states in verse 23, this is how, uh, for in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. And then in verse 26, Jesus warns, woe to you. When all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. And yet we as leaders are gutless in this day. We want everyone to speak well of us. Do you think, guys, I mean, I even hear it in Tim's voice in his discussion about me. You know, he knows when he brings me in here that I already have this reputation. I hate it. You think I want that reputation? To me, in this day, all you have to do is preach truth, and truth aside, the lukewarm, slop-jar Christianity that's lived in the church sounds so mean and so radical, and it's just basic Christianity. But in the current religious climate, guys like me come off sounding abrasive and harsh because of the garbage that's been promoted under false grace. Do you think I like it? I like being the bad guy. I know why God stuck me you know, out on Patmos, you know, 30 miles in the ocean. Keep me out of everybody's hair. Listen, these words of Jesus about false prophets and and who claps for them, it's a double-edged warning. Those who are speaking truth about God will not be the one the masses are praising. And secondly, if you are watching those who are being praised by the masses, that is how false prophets have been received. That's how you can identify them. It's a warning against the one speaking and the kind of crowd to avoid as giving authentication to your message. Listen, in Mark chapter 13, verse 33 to 37, Jesus warns of his coming at an hour that no man will know. Once again, a warning. Be ready. He's the ultimate point man. Four times in five verses, he warns disciples, you and me, to be on alert, to take heed, to avoid the danger of missing his coming due to sinful, lukewarm, and apathetic living in response to the gospel. Someone might say Jesus warned against false prophets and Pharisees because He is God and He can see the motivation of men's hearts. Okay, well then is there a strong human model for a man on point in the New Testament? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 20. Paul, you know, from the latest, it says, Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. And listen to this. How I kept nothing that was helpful I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. Notice, guys, Paul says to these men, I did not shrink back. I did not hold anything back that was profitable in teaching you from house to house. I kept nothing back. And then you read on down in verse 25 and 27. And indeed, now I know that all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul makes this statement about declaring the whole counsel of God twice in these verses that brought him persecution and suffering. Then listen to the language of a man on point. Verse 28 to 31. This gets me, man. Listen. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with many tears. Guys, listen to these words. He says, be on guard for yourselves and yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherds. Guys, well, what is a shepherd but God's point man? Protecting and guiding, teaching, leading, and dealing with potential threats to the sheep. And you look at verse 29 and verse 30. These are, these are some of the saddest verses in scripture to me. Paul had been with these men, training them for three years, longer than anywhere else in his missionary travels. And he says, I know, I know that when I leave, savage wolves will come in from the outside and spring on this flock. And from among you, your own selves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples in your flock after them. Think about what he's saying, guys. When I leave, when I leave, Wolves will come in. And those who have been hiding in sheep's clothing among you, speaking sheep, they'll rise up. Meaning that as long as Paul was on point, what? The wolves and false brothers would not rise up because they knew he would identify them as such and he would deal with them. It's huge. And how did the wolves know this and stay in hiding, waiting for Paul, the point man, to leave? Because verse 31, Paul says that for three years, day and night, he did not cease to admonish or to warn with tears. Day and night to everyone. Were these warnings and continual identification of wolf-like behavior, these false prophets and false teachers and fine-sounding arguments, was this the full counsel of God that Paul reminded them that he did not shrink back from speaking? I think so. In verse 26, Paul said, He was innocent of the blood of all men. What kind of language is that? That's the -the watchman-on-the-wall language. The man who calls out a warning when there is perilous danger. Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. I have warned of the coming wolves day and night. You know, you can hardly listen to one of my sermons, and I wouldn't advise it because it'll put you to sleep, but here's the deal, right? You can hardly go on the internet and listen to any of my sermons, and that's probably the reason I'm not on as many radio shows anymore, that I'm not talking about the emergent church leadership, the prosperity movement, the watered-down preaching of men within our our own movement. I constantly warn my church to the point of redundancy. It drives me mad when I listen to me preach. I have to cut it back sometimes, day and night. There's no joy in it. I would rather just instruct, because I just love the Word of God. Day and night, he says, I warned. Meaning that it was a constant part of his instruction to new believers, in the church services, in his training leaders, to everyone. And it wasn't some, you know, academic theological instruction, you know, presented for the purpose of the acquisition and redistribution of dogma. No, guys. Paul says, I instructed you both day and night with brokenness, with tears, knowing what was coming. Guys, that's a point, man. That's a point, man. And unfortunately, in these last days, too much of what goes on in our pulpits is nothing more than religious rhetoric, guys. You know, regurgitated information, historical fact, you know, Greek or Hebrew linguistic insight, you know, you know, to, you know cultural nuances so that we can make our messages seem so deep and, and, you know, the speaker sounds so intelligent. Or worse, it's like pop psychology and efforts at false unity all presented in a light, bubbly, humorous entertainment presentation. So few warning anything of the dangerous sin, the consequence of a real hell, you know, the tripwire of lukewarm living that results in the same eternal destiny as rejecting Jesus Christ. No, you know, those are, those are negative messages. You know, those are the messages of past unenlightened, hasty, redneck preachers, you know, of the old days. After all, this is the kind of postmodern, cool breeze, you know, relevant age. Guys, listen, so few are willing as Paul to warn of wolves with their vicious desires for power and wealth and fame and using the gospel as a means for gain. There's a tidal wave of fine-sounding arguments, a tsunami of false teachings and hollow philosophies to take captive the believers in the church. And like the elders of Miletus, No one, are the elders of Ephesus, no one is willing to identify them and deal with them for fear of being tagged with the satanic weapon of, you are too judgmental. You are too much like the Pharisees. You are too harsh. It is. It's all about self, man. When you're unwilling to stand up, because you guys know when you preach like this or you go out there and you call things like they are, you are going to get tagged. You are the point, man. You are going to take the bullet. When will we have some courage rise up in the church and men who are willing to take the bullet? How sad that Paul, the great apostle, possible, man. All right, I need some sleep. The great apostle, the greatest missionary of all time, the man God used to write the majority of the New Testament, spent three years with these elders at Ephesus, teaching them, warning them day and night, and yet Paul knew when he left, the wolves would rise up and be able to ravage the sheep. Guys, today the wolves have risen up. And they are running throughout the church doing exactly what Paul said they would do at Ephesus, speaking perverse things, drawing believers away to themselves. And why have they had such a free hand at it? Because there seems to be hardly a voice, a man on point to identify them as wolves. The leadership within the church has been silent for generally one of two reasons. First of all, the fear of men. Of having our reputation tainted for having identified false teachers and false teachings as wolves to be avoided and kept at bay. Or the second reason, which is a satanic propaganda blitz that's been as successful as the homosexual agenda at changing minds across the globe concerning what is truth. Satan has blindfolded and he has gagged the point men of the church. And he has placed unbiblical handcuffs, immobilizing the point man. On the idea and the false teaching that Christians are never to judge the actions or speech of another who claims to be a Christian. Christians have believed the lie that there is a prohibition on making judgments concerning men and women claiming Christ yet shaming the Lord with their words and their deeds. And that's God's greatest concern for us, you know, I should say, they they have people believing that God's greatest concern for us is that we have some type of unity at all costs based on false ecumenical agreements and false grace extended to wolves. Listen, pastors bringing, I, I see it all the time, pastors in our own movement, guys, it's heartbreaking, bringing in wolves in among their flocks with a fancy collar and a leash and telling their church, come pet the wolf. Come pet the wolf. Rather than warning of the danger to avoid them and their words and their deeds, avoid the danger as any real point man should. In our own movement of Calvary Chapel, there is a new wave, a new push to embrace ministries and men that clearly would not have been embraced only a few years ago. Listen, there are so many good teachers in Calvary, guys. Instructors on the meaning of God's word, but there are so few Point men, understanding that warnings are an integral part of teaching. Warnings of all dangers, sinful living and attitudes, unfruitful relationships, unrighteous media habits, lukewarm lifestyles, and wolves in sheep's clothing. Men described in 2 Timothy 3:1 through 5, where Paul points out their characteristics and he says: avoid such men as these. Guys, but many pastors don't see that as grace-filled teaching. Yet, if we are going to teach as the greatest point man of all time, the one who had every right to be the commander, but subordinated himself to a servant and be a point man, if we're going to teach as Jesus taught, we will realize that pointing out the warnings was part of his teaching. You look at Mark chapter. 12 verse 38 and it starts out like this it says in his teaching you should underline that if you get there in his teaching he was saying beware do you see that that's part of his teaching in his teaching he was saying Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, in the chief seats in the synagogues, in places of honor at banquets, and for appearances' sake, offer long prayers. God, wow, dude, are you kidding me? Think of this. This is part of Jesus' teaching, his instruction. That's how the verse starts. And think of what he's criticizing. Dude, if you did that today, I mean, he's criticizing their clothes, Right? He's criticizing their prayers, right? And their desire to be recognized with titles and certain greetings. I mean, I don't know about you, man, but I am so one of the things I enjoy so much about Calvary is, you know, I wasn't raised in church, but once I came to church, I quickly realized there was a dress code. And that silly statement that people would make about putting on a tie or dressing up was giving God your best. What a cheesy way to avoid what church really is about and what giving God your best is really about. Praise the Lord, we're not trapped in that religious foolishness. But that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Or men who have to be addressed as doctor, reverend, or whatever other title they throw out there, bishop, all that stupidity. Praise the Lord, we're not trapped up in that, amen? But Jesus, he's criticizing clothes, prayers, titles. I'm sure if we were... If he were here in the flesh today, he would be warning and instructing us with the same words concerning the prosperity teachers and the televangelists of our day. Guys, listen to me. This is probably the most important thing I'm going to say being here. The satanic gag placed on Christian leadership who are willing to take the point to put their reputation on the line and point out wolves. This gag of false teaching concerning judging must be removed. Don't get me wrong. I want you to understand this too. I have no desire to open a Pandora's box, right? And create a group within the body of Christ who think themselves to be the church police. That's not what I'm talking about. Becoming like the Pharisees that Jesus condemned. But clearly the word of God would equally condemn this modern passivity and protection of self that we have adopted in order to not look as though we are judgmental to the shame of our king many times and to the destruction of his sheep and more even than that to the muddying of the waters of the truth concerning the gospel and what it takes to be saved. That right there is the worst of all. That Jesus would bleed and die on a cross, naked, with insects in his womb, his genitals exposed to a world that ridiculed him already, and hang on that cross for you and me, and then you and I will not stand up for the gospel. We will allow it to be so muddied that no one really knows what it means to come to Jesus Christ in repentance because we're protecting our carefully orchestrated reputation of not being judgmental and hard. Guys, it's sickening to me we, we, we must stand. We must throw off that gag that Satan has placed over men in this time. Clearly, the Word of God would condemn our modern passivity towards these things. Sinners and wayward church folk have at least one passage, and you know this. If they don't know anything else in Scripture, they have one Scripture passage memorized and are so more than ready to spout it all the time to protect their practice of sinful or questionable behavior. And that Scripture would be found in one place, Luke chapter 6, verse 37. I want you to turn there with me. It's the only place I'll say right off, because you need to see this in context. So while you're bored and you're not paying attention to me and you're enduring this, right? Then you can read around it. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. They know this one better than anyone. Oh, do not judge and you'll not be judged. And do not condemn and you'll not be condemned. Didn't Jesus say that? Guys, let me tell you something. No man can be a point man unless he is willing to point out dangers, identify them, and eliminate their ability to harm those under his care and leadership. My goal with the rest of this message, with this last so many minutes that we have, is to ungag and destroy the handcuffs for those men who are courageous enough to take the point in these last days, and for the sake of supporting your pastor when he does it. Clearly, I pray you will be like the Bereans and return to this passage and read all of it. But you look at it, Luke chapter 6, verse 36 to 45. It says, Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgiven you will be forgiven. Given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and it will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye? When you yourself... Do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of his heart the mouth speaks guys remember brothers this was one speech that began in verse 20 and it's often referred to by theologians as the sermon on the plain i want you to go back and read the whole thing later but in context verse 35 in context jesus has just told the disciples how to treat their enemies we didn't read that section How to treat them with love and kindness and lending to them, being willing to be taken advantage of for the gospel's sake. He states in verse 35, this is how the sons of the Most High God act. And notice he says, For he himself, the Most High, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You see that, guys? And then, verse 36, he goes, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The whole emphasis is on how we treat the unsaved and win them to salvation, just as our Father won us when we were men who were evil and ungrateful. That's the emphasis of the passage. And then verse 37 is quoted or or spoken in relation to that context, where it calls us to not become judgmental or condemning in our hearts towards the unsaved. Guys, think about it. For what good would it do to lend to your enemy expecting nothing in return, or to go the extreme of chasing that guy down the street who just stole your jacket so you can give him your shirt? You know, you know, you're running down the street, you know, you know, hey, look, come back, you filthy, wretched, non praying heathen. I want to obey Jesus and bless you with my shirt in the love of Christ, right? What good would it do? How ignorant it would be. What a to have loved your enemies, the unsaved, through such radical actions that Jesus commands, and then turn around and cancel that effort by carrying you know, on with a judgmental, condemning, pharisaical heart. That's the emphasis of the passage, not a prohibition on judging situations that are foul and evil and dangerous. With that said, let us be clear about what is not being said in, in verse 37. If we try to pull Jesus' words out of context here and have them stand alone as a prohibition on all judgment and condemnation, there are some huge doctrinal issues that we have to deal with. First of all, in verse 37, Jesus said, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Wow! So does that mean you know, if, if I don't want to face God's judgment... All I have to do is make sure I spend my life being really careful not to judge anybody? You know, all, all I have to do to avoid the condemnation of rejecting Jesus at the end for my sin? All I have to do is make sure I don't condemn anybody? You see how silly that is? You know, just, just don't condemn anybody, dude, and you're hooked up. Of course, that would stand in contradiction, right, to Jesus' words in John 3.18, that all who don't believe in him stand condemned already. If Jesus' words were to only apply to disciples, some might say, well, this is just talking about how disciples act. Then it stands in contradiction to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where God's word clearly tells us that every Christian will stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, not affecting our salvation, but it says we will be judged according to what we did with this life he gave us, both the good and the bad that we did. Guys, every man, Christian or non-Christian will face some kind of judgment in the end. And some will face condemnation. Some who claim they were followers. You remember Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goats. Lord, when did we see you? Amen? You understand? Those guys, those goats are going to hell and it's condemnation. And then you look at Luke chapter 13, verse 23 to 28. Those disciples who end up, they don't make it. They're where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. And they say, hey, weren't we in the streets with you? Didn't we hear you teach? We knew who you were. Or you go to Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. Lord, Lord, didn't we in your name prophesy and heal? Well, listen, guys, everyone is going to face some kind of judgment or condemnation. Hebrews nine twenty seven tells us it is Appointed to every man to die once and then the judgment. All of us are facing it. People often speak of not judging others as it relates to people and to sins we are willing to tolerate, usually within our family or friends. And yes, if we take the stand that we, you know, think about it. If we take the stand that we are never to judge or never label evil, are we prepared to not address the Adolf Hitlers and the Osama Bin Ladens and the Saddam Husseins and the Jeffrey Dahmers? Are we? How many times have you run around? it? I guarantee you in a room this size of guys, there have been men who've gone around saying, well, we're not supposed to judge. Dude, I hear it all the time in the church. It's a full-on satanic lie. You are called to judge. If you're too gutless to do it, guys, then then don't repeat the lie of Satan. Just don't say anything. Because all you're doing is giving that lie to someone else to carry on. It's a full-on lie. You are called a judge. I'm not done. If you're still going, I'm not convinced yet. Well, give me a few minutes. You know, can you imagine anyone today other than our present administration maybe or some of the other liars of our time? Can you imagine people going, well, you know, I don't know, guys. You know, the Nazis, they were just misguided, man. They were doing what they thought was right. You know, or, or you know, it was mass murder, I know, but, well, you know, it's not our place to judge. Like Mr. Osteen. Listen, guys, condemnation of men to an eternal hell, that will never be our job, ever, as disciples. But are we prepared to look past those kidnapping, trafficking, and raping of children? Those who rape and kidnap for child soldiers and fulfill their lust on young girls in in northern Uganda and the Sudan? Are we prepared to look past that because we're not going to judge Give me a break. Simply acting as though these men and situations are beyond our evaluation. They are inert issues, void of moral evaluation. No. Verse 34 said, be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Guys, in that very evaluation, are we not having to make a judgment on who the ungrateful and wicked are? Do you see that? Jesus wants us to be like our Father in heaven, merciful and kind when we are dealing with sinful people in in an attempt to lead them to salvation. Jesus is not giving guys a call to universal tolerance and acceptance of any lifestyle or teaching. And as we said earlier, Jesus has called us to identify those who are in amongst the sheep in the church, in ministry, who look like sheep, but by their actions prove to be wolves. Guys, that requires judgment. Amen? Amen? And because of time, you will have to read the following text and I pray you do because I've got to run through this. I don't want to keep, I don't want to go too long. In Revelation, in Revelation chapter two, Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for in verse two, he says what? Among other things that are commendable, you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. In other words, they had tested and judged those who were among them, claiming to be followers and leaders of Christianity, and were proven false. Ephesians chapter 5, I just want to show you, this is all throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 3 describes the life of the believer and the light that should not be among believers. And if you go to verse 5, it says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then it goes on to say in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The NIV says do not be partners with them. And yet constantly I am being badgered and hassled and men like your pastor that we need to embrace more of these edgy, dark preachers who's promoting the idea of drinking among those who are leaders in the church, promoting ideas that we need to be a little more liberal with our verbiage, basically it's sewage from the pulpit. No, guys, we cannot go there. No immoral or impure person. This is written to the church. No immoral or impure person, impure person, yet we have men like in pulpits today like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell justifying homosexuality. Yeah, yeah. how many of you guys know who Brian McLaren is? It was listed as one of the top 20 evangelicals by one of those gnarly magazines a few years ago, right, that everyone reads. And just this past fall, married his son off, participated in a same-sex marriage to some guy named Trevor. You think I'm not going to identify that guy as a wolf? You think if I see one of my guys with his book in their hand, I'm not going to say, hey, man, could you take that to the bathroom? We're out of toilet paper. That's all it's good for. Rick Warren. Oh, my gosh. The first inauguration, this guy goes in there, right? Right? And he's supposed to do the inauguration prayer. And our vile president goes and brings in some homosexual guy claiming to be a leader in the church. And, and, and Rick Warren's statement is, I'm just so proud of our president because now he has shown he is a man of all the people. Let me throw up. He's a wolf. And you may not disagree. You know, you may think, oh, you're too hard, Billy. Well, fine, whatever. He's a wolf. He's a wolf. He's nothing like Jesus he endorses men all the time who will lead you. And it's only the start down that path, guys. He's not promoting gross sexuality or gross immorality or gross negligence towards the holiness of God or gross lukewarmness, but he's always edging you down that path. It's sick. Verse 11 do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, even what? Expose them. <laughs> expose them. Do not be deceived. Do you think, guys, this might require a bit of judgment? How else can you read the Word of God and and look at their lives and expose them and say, well, we're just not supposed to judge, Billy. You know. Give me a break, guys. Exposing deception of empty words concerning things that keep people from inheriting the kingdom of God Things that bring the wrath of God, Ephesians says, this is the work of the one who is willing to take the point, and it requires judgment. Second Timothy three verses one through nine. Once again, we find in Scripture a people described who have a form of religion. Your pastor mentioned it this morning, but as verse eight states, they are not saved, but they are rejected. Verse 5 says, avoid such men as these. Verse 5 in the NIV, have nothing to do with them. Why, out of self-righteous or pharisaical hearts? No, of course not. But to protect truth, the gospel. I'm not partnering with men like this, guys, who promote lukewarm or unholy living as acceptable lifestyles under false grace. I'm not partnering with these men. Leading people to false comfort in their sin with fine-sounding arguments, you do realize, guys, that the guys that we are warned about are the guys with fine-sounding arguments. The things they say, we even even a pastor who's learned in the Word has to go, "I'm not, dude. I'm just that sounds kind of right." You do realize that, Amen. This is what we've been warned about, not the stupid guys saying ridiculous, ludicrous things like Jesus was a homosexual he had relations with. No, we've dismissed that in a minute. It's the guys like Rick Warren. It's the guys like Brian McLaren, like Rob Bell. It's those guys, the the Copelands and the Hagans and the Dollars and all the other fools preaching their trash and getting rich off the gospel. These are the men who have fine-sounding arguments. And if you read their foolishness, after a while your brain starts spinning because you think, well, that sounds right. We've been warned, and your job is to warn for the sake of our king, for his honor, and for the gospel that he died to give this world to save them. Have nothing to do with them. Listen, I, you know, I, I know sometimes you guys probably think, well, yeah, but does Billy live it? Listen, I got guys in my island. I am a lonely pastor, man. I am lonely. There's no Calvary guys near me. I'm 30 miles out in the ocean, and there's a couple of new guys on my island that I'm trying to to reach out to. But I got guys all around me preaching crazy trash. I got the prosperity guys with hyper-prosperity. But you know what, guys? Let me tell you straight up. I'm not up here preaching one thing and out there doing something else. I took those guys to dinner one night. Hey, I'd like to have you guys for dinner. Can you come? Then I took, because they're local boys, and they have a lot of pull on the island. I'm a foreigner. I've been here 20 years, but I'm still not a local. And I took one of our guys, who's a local, who's friends with both of them. Let's just have a meal together. And I told him, you guys, stop inviting people from our fellowship to that poison drink you're serving. I said, let me make something perfectly clear. This isn't very good dinner talk. But I said, let me make something perfectly clear to you guys. When I speak of what you teach, I don't tell my church we have a disagreement. What you teach is heresy. I told them that. Listen, guys, I am the appointment for the sheep that God has appointed me to. And whether you like what I'm saying today or you say, oh, Pastor Tim, I'm here, you never have him back. I could care less. I know that among you there are one or two who will say, you know, that is what the word says. And when our pastor stands up and calls names, we need to back off and support him. We need to realize this call to judgment is a lot of foolishness. I know the dangers that can come from it, but it is truth. And it is the work of the real men of God. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Like, need I go on? The most obvious and clear scripture that assures us of a responsibility and mandate to make a judgment call is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through 12. If you'll turn there, guys, it is crystal. And Paul writes, and you know the situation, this guy is having sex with his father's wife his stepmom, And the Corinthian church thinks it's cool. We're tolerant. This is love. We don't have a problem with it. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And this goes back to what Jesus said about not judging. He said, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then would you, you would have to go out of the world but i actually i wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one for what have i to do with judging outsiders do you not judge those who are within the church it's a rhetorical question Paul makes it clear to not associate with one who calls himself a Christian, but chooses to be sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. In verse 12, Paul writes, I have no business with the judgment of unbelievers outside the church. Of course we don't. But he writes, are we not to judge those inside? For the sake of the integrity of the gospel, guys, we are obligated to judge sinful behavior and deal with it. And then, in love, restore one who repents. That's the backside. The Word of God calls us to judge and expose people in situations inside the walls of Christianity for these reasons. Number one, anything that would damage the gospel's integrity to a lost world and muddy the waters. Number two, anything that would injure the sheep that we have been given to our care. Number three, anything that would shame the name of our king. Number four, anything that would cause those participating in the activity or attitude to be disqualified from heaven, as it said in Ephesians. Guys, God gave Joshua the instruction and means to identify the evil in the midst of God's people and the consequences for it. Achan is identified, and then the walk. Can you imagine the walk? Dude, can you imagine the walk? Chapter 7 verse 24 of Joshua speaks of it. You know it's about a mile journey from Jericho to the Valley of Achor where Joshua would have Achan and his whole family stoned and burned in front of all of Israel. <laughs> Can you imagine that walk? Those friends of Achan's family, now he's been identified. It came down, you're the one, you're the evil. And all of the friends of Achan's family, those parents who had held his children and knew them intimately, his wife's friends, all because of one man's sin. But God said he would no longer be with Joshua or the people of God if they refused to destroy what God had called to destroy. I, I can't even imagine that walk. Can you imagine that walk? Who has kids in here? Doctor, what's your last name? Curtis? Curtis? Ernest. Ernest. What, what if the doctor all of a sudden, hey, this was, hey, all of you guys, how many of you guys love him? Hands aren't going up quick enough. Okay, well, no, you're popular. Okay, look, how many guys love his kids? Can you imagine God comes to Tim and says, this guys he's the one. Next Sunday when church is done, I want you to take him and his boys and your whole church, about a mile down the road here, I want you to take them there and I want you to stone them in front of the entire church, children, women, men, and then I want you to burn them. Can you imagine that walk? Can you imagine that moment? God says, that's your choice. That's what I've told you to do. I don't care what it looks like. You can do that or you can be minus me. The church today refuses to do the hard things of calling wolves, wolves. And so much of the time we are without God. We, like Joshua, have been given the means to identify what is false and dangerous. We have been given God's word. God's not pointing it out like he did with Joshua, but he has made it crystal clear what a true Christian looks like. Holy, righteous, self-sacrificially living, repentant, chasing after Jesus with a passion. He's shown us what is false and dangerous through his word, through the gift of discernment, through the Holy Spirit living in each one of us. That which has the power to empty the cross of its power, as described in 1 Corinthians 1, an unthinkable thing, when men start preaching the gospel on human wisdom. That which has the power to quench the Holy Spirit of God in our midst, in our families, in our church, and is described throughout the New Testament. I got a couple of minutes, so. I was going to use this for kind of a funner thing, but. Tell me, what is this? What is it? A A wolf in sheep's clothing. You know where I got this? Anybody have a guess? Ace hardware. Even they know that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. Why were you able to identify the puppet? I don't think too many people are buying this for their kids. I don't know what this was doing in Ace Hardware. You immediately go, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Why? Because you know a wolf has claws, he has teeth like this, this is what a wolf looks like, and you know what a sheepskin looks like. And yet in the church when God says, I've given you everything you need to identify a wolf in sheep's clothing, we go, what does it look like? Is there such really a thing that we can ever identify and say that's a wolf in sheep's clothing? And God has given us definitive information about what a wolf in sheep's clothing looks like and the destruction he brings into your church. I tell you today, if tomorrow you saw on the news that there was a man who was raping children and coming into churches and shooting pastors and he walked through that door there wouldn't be a man in here who would not stop him or fight against him yet i tell you if a man rapes a woman or a child it may be misery for an hour two hours 24 hours but it will not touch hell where your men and your women and your children will end up if they follow the wolves teachings that are entering our doors we must stand up and take point and identify the dangers that can destroy people eternally. Amen? I'm about done, guys. If we are men on point willing to take the point, then do it in the work that God has given you, the hard work of being the man on point. If you're a pastor, a youth leader, a Sunday school teacher, a dad, take the point. When we see the evidence, the tracks of evil men, let us identify the evidence in person for what they are. Those within our ranks who promote lukewarm living and edgy ministry practices in the name of relevance or postmodern evangelism. All leading people to live lives that justify self and tolerance of things that Jesus would never approve. Let us be a people who look for the best in people at all times. Let me say that as I end. Let us be men who look for the best in people at all times. Amen? Amen. But not at the expense of our king or his gospel or the sheep that he gave his blood for. I'm not advocating, as I said earlier, the formation of some type of you know, special ops church police spending all of our energy looking for the bad. Those people drive me nuts. But I am saying we need to break free from the satanic handcuffs and gag that has us believing we are never to judge or call men out by name who are a danger. Their teachings, a tripwire to those depending on us to take the point. The point man knows that as he leads, he is the target. You do realize, guys, if you do what I'm doing, you're going to get beat up. You're the guy who's going to take the first bullet on point. The man who will take the first bullet, the first hit. If you stand for truth in these days, you will be shot and injured. Bottom line. I want to close with a quote by A.W. Tozer. He wrote something in 1966 that reminds me of what we are called to as men on point. It's written to pastors, but it's written to every one of us. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but we are prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but it is an ultimatum. Amen.